Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Friends, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, this is where we talk about growing our business as life story professionals. That is helping clients create life story books and other legacy projects to share with their family, friends, and future generations. We're not doing genealogy, but there's definitely some overlap between the two. And that brings me to today's topic. It's something that's really on fire now, and it probably has been for a while, but I think I only just got keyed into it. Um, but it's absolutely something that you hear a lot of people talking about, and that is genetic testing to discover our genealogical roots. There's 23andMe, there's the big boy in the room, Ancestry DNA. Um, and all of this caught my attention recently because of some things that I've heard people talking about and writing about, and I'm getting really confused by it. And because of that, I am bringing on a very, very special guest for today's episode, not the least of which is because he's one of my very best friends, and it's Mike Tones. Hi, Mike. Hi, Amy. Mike is one of the smartest guys I know. Mike, you can turn your ears off on this part, but he is. He's one of the smartest <laughs> people I know. I'm, I'm blushing. So Mike is honestly, he's hes the kind of guy that he won't just take something for granted if you tell him something. He's hes the kind that has to like get out there and poke something with a stick and see what happens before he believes something with his own eyes. And that's because he's a scientist, through and through a scientist. He grew up in Northumberland, England. He studied biochemistry and physiology. He studied the heart. He has degrees from the University of Sheffield. He got his PhD from the University of London. He's worked for years leading projects in the pharmaceutical industry, doing research on uh, research and development on medical devices. He's worked in the UK and in Switzerland and for the past dozen or so years in the United States. And if that's not cool enough, he's also a luthier, which I didn't know what that meant until I met him. That means that he makes his own instruments. He's a poet. He composes his own music. And that's his voice and his original composition that you hear each time you listen to the show. He's on the intro and the outro. So I, yes, I probably shouldn't have gushed about you quite that much, but there you have it, Mike. <laughs> very, very glad to have you here because I'm just needing a good scientific explanation about what is going on with this genetic testing. So just to set the stage, um, my brother-in-law is really interested in genealogy and um, I picked his name for, well, actually my son picked his name for Christmas this year because we, we exchange gifts, but not for everybody. So we picked names from a hat and my son got his name and he forgot his Christmas present. So I had to make it up for him with something really good. And I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to get him ancestry DNA. And then he will know exactly how Nordic he is and how German he is. Um, and then after that, my sister and I, the ancestry DNA had a sale going on and it might still be going on right now. And my sister and I, there are only two of us. And we were talking about how um, we were going to game the system by just ordering one of these DNA kits. And, you know, one of us can swab it because we're going to have the exact same ancestry DNA, right? Because we have the same exact set of parents and same exact set of grandparents and great grandparents and great, great, you know, all, all the way back. Um, and I, I know that our DNA doesn't match up, but I'm thinking, you know, in my, in my world of logic, 
if the DNA traces our grandparents and great-grandparents, then that part of it has to match up. Okay, so flash forward a little bit, and I was on this um, Facebook page that I've been looking at, and it's about family family history. And I mentioned that my sister and I were splitting the DNA test. And um, this woman said she has a family, in her family, there were five siblings. They each did the ancestry DNA um, swab and sent it away, and they all got different results. And in a couple of the cases, they were crazy different results. So, Mike, what is going on with this? I don't understand. <laughs> well, first, thanks for the glowing introduction. It's it's a heck of a lot to live <laughs> up to, so I hope I end up disappointed. Um, well, the first thing to say, I suppose, is that you know that you and your sister are different genetically because you're not identical twins. So that tells you something to begin with. So let's think about how we inherit uh, genetic information from our parents. Um, now, one thing we can say for certain is that we get 50% of our DNA from each parent. But when you have a sibling, um, you only on average share uh, 50% of your DNA with a sibling. And that's only an average across everybody in the world. So it's actually theoretically possible that you could share either no DNA with a sibling or you could actually have exactly the same DNA. The probability of those two extremes is incredibly low, so it basically never happens. But uh, in other words, that's why the uh, you, you can't, uh, uh, if you'll forgive me for saying this, be a cheapskate and try and double up on the DNA, <laughs> DNA testing. <laughs> I get that. But I mean, she and I had the same parents and grandparents and great grandparents. So that's the part that I don't understand, because that is something very, um, you know, there's, there's no, there's no mixing up of that. It's not like her, you know, paternal grandfather was just sort of my paternal grandfather. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, yes, that's, that's true in terms of uh, family history, but at a genetic level, uh, it's a little bit more complicated. So let's think about the way in which that the genetics work. So I think we all know that DNA carries the genetic information. That DNA is packaged in chromosomes. And so we each have, and the reason why 23andMe is called 23andMe is because we each have 23 pairs of chromosomes. In fact, it's actually, we have 22 pairs of what are called autosomes, which are the non-sex chromosomes. And then we have two sex chromosomes. And in women, it's a pair of X chromosomes. And in men, it's one X and one Y. Now, what happens in the process of a reproduction is that... Um, the, in the formation of the sperm and the egg, the the pairs get separated so that the sperm or the egg only receives one of the pair. But each sperm and each egg, which of the pair it gets, is a completely random process. Uh, so if you think, if you have, if you do the statistics, the number of combinations of 
which of the pair you get for chromosome one, chromosome two, chromosome three, chromosome four, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to the, the, you know, the 22 and then the sex chromosomes. The number of combinations of the different chromosomes uh, is huge. And that's why there's a, there's an enormous variety of genetics between all the different sperm and all the different eggs. And when they come together, they create an enormous different variety of the, of the offspring. Um, so, so you can say for certain that you, you got 50% of your DNA from your mother and 50% from your father. But actually, if you, if you go back and think of them, they each got 50% of their DNA from their mother and their father. But actually what it doesn't mean is you didn't necessarily get 25% of your DNA from each of your grandparents. And it's because of the way the DNA is packaged. Um, so it could be, for example, that um, you got the 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 egg that came from your you know that that became you that was formed in your mother was just happened to contain all of the chromosomes from one of her parents and not the other in which case that that grandparent would be overrepresented mm -hmm. in your in your genome and the other grandparent on your mother's side would not be represented at wait, all. Wait, wait, is that one of the cases that you're saying it's very, it's not likely to happen, but it's theoretically possible that I, okay. Yes, okay. yes. It's an, it's an extreme. But it's definitely going to be but, some mixture. It's not going to be that, you know, my grandma Seal and my uncle Phil, I had 50% from grandma Seal and 50% from uncle Phil. It's, it's going to be more like, you know, 37 and whatever the other number would be, right? Well, because they are grandparents, on average, it'll be twenty-five percent oh. from each grandparent. But but the point is that I, I know the point you're making, and you've that's exactly right. So it, it's not going to be exactly twenty-five percent from each grandparent. It's going to be somewhere, you know, on either side of that. And and as you go further back in the generations, the um, the deviation from the average on any individual person gets more and more and more. And so the, the, the way to think about that is uh, the, the way to illustrate it, should I say, is that, okay, so we each have 46 chromosomes, right? 23 pairs and chromosomes are inherited. They're a package of genes, right? So you, so you sort of get a, a, you, you, they come in packages and with one exception, those packages don't get mixed up. They stay as a package. So if you get, um, if you inherit chromosome one from your, you know, one particular grandparent, all of the genes on chromosome one came from oh. that grandparent, Right. So we think, you know, we talk about genes being the unit of inheritance, but in some sense, actually, it's chromosomes. And chromosome is like a basket of mm -hmm. genes. It's, a, it's a, a set of genes that are arranged on that chromosome. So if, if we think about it, um, okay, we each have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. By the time you get back to... The level where you had your great 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 grandparents, um, 
that you had 64 of them. Well, that's more than the number of chromosomes you have. And so there will be some of that generation that you cannot have inherited any of their DNA. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so then the whole theory, you know how you hear about if you go back far enough, we're all related to Attila the Hun, that kind of, the uh, Attila the Hun, (laughs) that knocks that one down, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, there are some assumptions that that I'm making in that logic that I haven't talked about yet. And I'm going to have to go and list all the assumptions that I'm making. So if any of my scientist friends are listening to this, they don't give me a hard time (laughs) about it. Um, But um, yeah, for example, if you take, you know, people say, well, you know, I can trace my family tree back to the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so the Mayflower, my knowledge of history is, well, actually, I had to look it up the other day because I didn't know. But it, the Mayflower, I believe, was in 1620. That sounds about so right. So that, <laughs> well, it's not a history <laughs> podcast, is it? Um, so the, so that's 300, uh, what is that, three. 198 years ago. Yeah. So if we assume that a human generation time is 25 years, that's 15 generations or more. Okay. So that means it's way further back than the example that I just Mm -hmm. gave. So the probability, if you say you have a relative that came on the Mayflower, the probability that you actually have any of their DNA is, is, pretty low Hmm. that's not to say that they're not in your family tree but genetically the possibility of you actually having any of their dna still is is pretty right so so if i were not enlightened by you tonight and i did not realize that our genes are packaged up in these chromosome baskets if if that weren't the case then we it could have been very much more likely that I would have had some of the genetic coding from the, well, I didn't have anybody coming over from the, on the Mayflower, but I did have relatives coming from England in the 1700s before the Revolutionary War, which I don't think you call it the Revolutionary War, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we try not to talk yeah, about okay, it at we'll all. leave that one out of the podcast. <laughs> but because they are bundled up in these packages – then, am I understanding you right? Then that means that um, we are not going to get specifically, there's no way of getting any of the genes from lots and lots of our uh, predecessors. Is that correct? Yes. It's not like, um, uh, you know, you are a glass of water genetically, which is infinitely divisible. It's because that your inheritance is packaged in these in these packages called chromosomes. That is so interesting. Okay, so then do you know anything about how these this genetic the ancestry.com and the 23andme how are they actually doing this science to to trace it back, you know, and they're, they're, you know, you're hearing about people getting, well, you'll, you'll think this one is funny. I was back on that same website today. It's, and by the way, if anybody's interested, it's um, Lynn Cobine is the name of the woman who is the administrator of it. And it's a Facebook website, a uh, Facebook page. I'm not sure what you call it. And it's called family history, writing and photos. And she posted something just a day or two ago. And this one really cracked me up because I knew that we were going to be having this episode. And she said that the average 
she's British, I believe. And she says the average British person's DNA is only 36% British. And then a woman responded to that. And I'm assuming that this woman is is from the UK. And she said that she had her DNA checked and it came back as 1% British. So, <laughs> so I'm just not quite sure like how this all meshes up. Do you know how they're, how they're, the science is being done to, to do these ancestry um, DNA tests? Uh, yeah, to some extent, yeah. Uh, what they what they don't do, as far as I understand it, is they don't sequence your entire genome, which would be the best way to do it in a way. Um, and it probably will come to that because the cost of DNA sequencing is coming down. Okay, now wait, time. I'm gonna okay, as just far- because you hear that all the time, and I really don't know what that means. Having your whole genome sequenced, can you? put it in layman's terms or in Amy terms. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, the information that's contained in your DNA is uh, in the form of the sequence of uh, things within the DNA called bases. So a DNA is an incredibly long molecule and it has a structure. It's you know, everybody's heard of the double helix, I think, mm-hmm. probably, and that relates to the structure of the molecule. And you you could think of it as being a little bit a bit like a ladder, where you have the the rails of the ladder are what we call the backbone of the DNA, or actually there are two backbones in a double stranded DNA molecule, and then the the rungs are actually pairs of bases. Um, and it's the sequence of those bases that contains the information. Uh, so it's a it's a genetic code is contained in the sequence of those bases. And there are four kinds of bases, and shorthand we call them G, A, T, and C. And that's really what it comes down to. Each chromosome is an enormous DNA molecule um, with... Uh, associated proteins, but basically the business part of it is the DNA molecule. And when we talk about sequencing the genome, we're talking about sequencing all of those bases on all of the chromosomes. Um, And for any given species, there is a sort of consensus, an average sequence, but individuals differ because there are certain positions along that sequence where there are differences between individuals. And that's what accounts for genetic variety in the population. And when you say there's differences in the sequences, you're talking, what were the four initials? G-A? G-A-T-C. So it's just a different mixture of G's and A's and T's and C's? Uh, Yes, but it would be uh, one of the most common differences between individuals are what's called uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNPs or SNPs. And so the way that would work is in a, you know, if you see, if you look at the sequence of a gene, it literally just goes G, G, A, T, C, C, A, T, G, C, you know, it just (laughs) on and on and on and on and on. And there'll be one position where if you lined up, well, at, at one of these, SNPs, if you were to line up the sequence for a load of different individuals, then you'd see that that one position, in some people it was a C, in other people it was a T, and maybe in other people it was it was one of the other two letters. 
so it's just a, it's a single nucleotide. It kind of means a single base um, difference at that particular position. And that's the only differences. So the everything else would line up if you had if you were doing individuals side by side. Uh, by and large, but there are some other differences you can have, which are larger differences. Uh, there are some parts of the genome where there are repetitive sequences, and and sometimes people differ because they have different number of repeats, and that's another way in which individuals can differ from each other. But but by and large, and particularly with respect to the methods that companies like Twenty Three and Me use, they actually use these SNPs as part of. Uh, that's what their technology is based on. Oh, and, and so. Actually, going back to the, you asked me about, you know, how does it all work sort of thing. And I started off by saying, well, what they don't do is they don't do genome sequencing. Um, what the technology that they use is based on, um, is based on choosing these SNP positions and screening the DNA for the, for what kind of SNP you have. So let's say there's we know that there's a SNP in a particular position in a particular gene, and some people have got a G there, and some people have got a C. Well, they have a little microchip which has a little um, little positions on it. One of which will sort of light up if somebody has a G, and the other one will light up if somebody has a wait, C. Wait, wait, you're talking about when it's in the lab and they actually have the DNA sample. They're putting these little yes. micro. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. That must be yeah. a tiny it, it's, microchip. It's very, and it has a heck of a lot of little little positions on it. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the power of the technology. I mean, it's incredibly clever. Um, and it's it, one of the amazing things about DNA is this because of its its tendency to form a double helix. The reason why it forms a double helix is because of the pairing, what they call the base pair rules of DNA, which is that if you have a G on one strand, if you imagine one half of the rung of the ladder is a G, the other half is always a C. Hmm. And, and if one half is an A, the other half is always a T. So if you know the sequence of one side of the DNA molecule, you can predict the sequence of the other side. And they have a, and if you have two complementary sequences, they will they will always find each other and and hybridize is the word that we use for when they come together and form a double helix. Uh, so what they're doing on these chips is they have what they call probes where they match either the G version or the C version of the SNP, and if you have if you have the G version it'll hybridize to one of those spots and not the other. And if you have the C version, it'll hybridize to the other one. <laughs> and then they have a way of telling whether telling whether the DNA is hybridized to, to whichever spot on the chip. Okay, so bring this around to what this means for um, reading your ancestry. Re you know, how, how, does, how does this help us see where our ancestors came from? Uh, so the other thing that they do is they have accumulated um, data um, from different populations that that are sort of genetically representative of those populations. 
So I think the sort of thing that they do is they would, let's say they go to, let's pick a country at random, Britain. They find people whose, let's say, whose all four grandparents were born within 100 miles of, of where the person was born. And then they say, okay, well, if that's the case, this person is representative of like indigenous British mm -hmm. people. Now that's a, I'm not sure if that's exactly how they do it, but I know that's how some studies have done it, but it'll be some variation along those lines. Now, of course, that is based on the assumption that there's a single thing called a British person genetically. And actually what we know is that there are genetic subdivisions of British people. Uh, because, for example, um, the Vikings ha had more influence genetically on the on the population in some, some parts of the country and not in the other parts of the country because they tended to raid in the north and in Scotland and all that sort of stuff, uh, and not so much in the southwest, for example. Uh, also, there are some parts of the country that the um, that the Romans never really had, you know, conquered. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so the, you know, it's very interesting. There's been some really interesting genetic studies which have really looked at the fine structure of the genetics in in Britain, for example. It just just happens to be the one that I've seen. Um, so what so what they've done is they've taken all these different populations of people from all these different countries around the world, um, different tribal sort of origins. Um, and they've 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 profiled them and they've said, okay, what is the pattern of SNPs that that is uh, associated with people from that region? And then when they screen your DNA as a as a paying customer, they then say, okay, well, how much of that pattern overlaps with what I consider mm -hmm. a typical pattern for you know people from Sicily or the you know. Kalahari Bushmen or whatever it, it might be. So that's basically how it works. It, it's um, it's not quite as uh, it, it's not quite as high resolution as DNA sequencing would be because in DNA sequencing you're sequencing every single base in the genome, whereas in with this SNP based technology you're choosing the snips that you look so it's at. just a sampling basically yeah but it's a very it's a high number i mean i, I don't know what the numbers are but it, it yes it's a pretty high number so if they're if they're taking the dna from people who are supposedly representative of a given area we don't know where those people came from seven generations ago right or we don't know where it, it, to me, I'm still not quite sure. It still, it still seems a little bit um, shaky ground to say that because even if if your um, SNPs are matching up with the SNPs of people from a certain, you know, from Northumberland, but but that's because the people that the pool that they're drawing from, um, they're assuming that for a generation back. Um, or two generations back, those are representative of the people from Northumberland. But what if it was, you know, it was a tribe of Normans that had settled there, you know, however many hundreds of years ago? Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, yes. And, and that I think that is one of the issues with it because, I mean, the original people who lived in Britain before, let's say, before the Romans invaders, 
probably had a very different genetic makeup. I mean, the original Britons had a, had a very different genetic makeup from the average Briton today because the average Briton today reflects, you know, the Roman invasion, the Norman invasion, the Viking invasion, and all the immigration that's happened, you know, piecemeal over the centuries. So, yes, there are some assumptions in there, but I suppose the way to look at it is that if I were to say, okay, well, I think I'm a, you know, traditional North, you know, representative of somebody from Northumberland um, because all of my grandparents were born within 100 miles of where I was born. That's probably, which is actually true, <laughs> by the way, um, uh, That that's probably, you know, in everyday life, we'd probably accept that as being, oh, yes, that person really is from Northumberland. <laughs> you know what I mean? They are sort of fairly typical. And uh, and it's actually interesting. Every time I go back to Northumberland, I look around and I, I I look at the people and I think, yeah, this is the gene pool from which I sprang. You know, they, they all look like me. You know, they're all sort of pasty and the guys are all bald. And uh, <laughs> oh, maybe we shouldn't broadcast that bit. Well, and I, I think that speaks to something else that. Um, just makes me question this whole desire to, you know, really have put numbers, put these percentages, because people do, you know, when you get the report back. So my sister and I are, we haven't gotten the the thing yet, but we will be sending it away and we will be getting reports. I, have, I haven't seen the report firsthand yet, but I know that when people get the results, they're, um, you know, it's saying 17% this uh, nationality and, you know, 3% that nationality. And I'm just wondering, does it have, A, does it have any scientifically, is it is it valid to really say, okay, I am whatever, 13% Chinese or is it something that is has just caught our fancy because now we know how to do things in the lab with DNA and with sequencing and you know we know about SNPs now um, and are we just a little blindsided by the you know by the new technology? Is the real question you're asking? Is it all BS? Yes, that is the real question. Okay. Okay. Uh, well. No, it isn't. So um, I, what we have to bear in mind, and I think this is sometimes difficult for, for non-scientists to appreciate, is that um, there are issue, there's no such thing as a perfect scientific method. And uh, there are assumptions inherent in all methods. And as long as you are aware of those assumptions – then it's perfectly valid to use the method. And, and in your interpretation of the results, you just bear in mind the assumptions that have been made. Um, is, the, is the member of the, uh, you know, is the average member of the public going to really think about things at that level? No. But is there any harm going to come from whether some of those assumptions might influence the results? Mm. Probably not. But to, to flip it around, if you, you know, if you were to say, well, I'm a 16th Cherokee, uh, is that really you, because, you know, one of your great, 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 whatever it is, whichever generation it is, you know, one of your ancestors this, um, at that level was, was Cherokee, is that we don't generally question that, but based on what I just told you, actually, 
it's possible you could have none of that Cherokee D- DNA in you, but we wouldn't generally question the fact that somebody was six, yeah, you know, a sixteenth Cherokee if they have uh, sort of verification based on birth records and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And and actually, there's a really interesting part to this, which I just um, I just thought about the other day as I was thinking about we're going to be having this this conversation because. Actually, when you th- with some of the, some of the Native American nations, um, you know, they have tribal lands and they have they have different laws in those lands, and they have businesses based on casinos. And if you have a certain percentage of the tribal blood, you you get a share in that business. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. It's right. certainly, I think, it's true in in Connecticut. Um, and I know of of people who have been able to give up work because they were able to prove that they had whatever the requirement was for the, you know, percentage of the membership of that, of that, uh, of that tribe. Um, okay. So that's fine. That's the way things work. But what if suddenly somebody said, well, no, you have to prove it at a DNA level. Hmm. Well, then they would have to listen to this and realize that not all of the DNA is going to show up. Well, exactly, and, and actually, when I when I thought about it, I thought, well, that would be a really bad idea, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, there's we don't know what what kind of applications people are going to use for this kind of testing, um, and I'm I'm not saying that I think it's going to be used for nefarious purposes. Um, I in my mind, I'm just wondering if it's uh, if you know, like if we have stars in our eyes, because technologically it's, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, but there are, there are always surprises, right? When you have for any, any kind of, um, scientific or technological advances, there are surprises in the way that those things are used or the way that they're applied. So it's an interesting point that you're bringing up. Yeah. And there's been a huge controversy over the years. Um, because, uh, 23andMe has had two aspects to their business. One is um, sort of um, genealogy research, people trying to work out what their ancestry is, and the other is health screening. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as I understand it, they've sort of sold two separate kits or two separate services um, for those two things where you can get the combined one, and they've had this back and forwards with the FDA because the FDA objected because – they were effectively giving people health-related information, but they hadn't gone through the whole approval process that, you know, and, and it, there's a whole lot of stuff on Wikipedia about this stuff, and I'm, you know, probably not qualified to speak about it in any detail. But, um, and they actually have got FDA approval now for some of the information that they provide. Um, Boy, so people people were. Um, you're saying that part of the uh, customer base was actually sending away for these kits so that they could find out their own medical ancestry uh, or their own risk of disease, right? Uh, so, you, and then if, if you, you if you think about insurance companies and who would have access to that information, then it does get a little bit scary, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are some interesting ethical issues right. <laughs> and, and sort of, yeah, all the insurance and legal and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's a whole different um, topic really, I think. Um, but yeah, they, they offer the two services 
separately. So you sign, you can sign up for the ancestry service and that's the only information you get. You don't get anything about, you know, your risk of breast cancer or, you know, whatever. Um, or you can sign up for the health related information and you'll get all that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. But not know if you're, if your ancestors came over on the Mayflower. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we don't, we, we don't have the, any DNA samples, as far as I understand it, from the people who did come over on the Mayflower. But well, that, 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 it yeah. actually would be possible to do that if we – if uh, maybe – let me think about this. Well, I'm just thinking I, I of think Jurassic Park. Now. I mean, if we found a piece of amber with, you know, <laughs> that was that had somebody's <laughs> hair in it. But, but that does make me wonder. So if we if we were able to have so you were talking earlier about how um, you know, pools of people, we're assuming that we can call we can label them a certain nationality for want of a better word, right? Or a certain tribe of people. Um, but it but it's pretty much related, you know, you have to look at the X and Y, the, the time and place, right? Where where they are in a place and at what time period. So, but if there were ways of finding, um, of, of getting good amounts of samples of DNA from people from, say, a thousand years ago, would that change what this looks like the um, what the results that people are getting now? You know, if, if we could find those snips on cultures that are long long gone well there's an example actually of exactly that and it goes back further in time when we talk about the neanderthal mm-hmm. uh, genome because when that was sequenced uh we then had the ability and this is part of the service provided by these companies is that they know the snip markers for neanderthal DNA. So they give you an estimate of how much Neanderthal you have because <laughs> I we, thought you were going there. You were kidding yeah, well, me. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, and, and obviously that tells you that there was, uh, you know, there was interbreeding between uh, Neanderthals and humans. Right. And because so- we existed at the same time. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm very shaky yeah. on this, but we existed at the t- same time period, but we're two different species. Yes. Um, yeah. Wow. And it, it, it does. I mean, the, when, um, I mean, all of this stuff is really interesting because it's tied into the history of the human species and migration of human populations and all that sort of thing. So, for example, we know that human beings encountered Neanderthals probably in Europe after human beings emerged from Africa. Was that in Northumberland that they were encountered? (laughs) Very funny. Uh, Thank you. Um, uh, so the, uh, as far as I understand, if I remember correctly, the only human populations that don't contain any Neanderthal DNA are the African populations that stayed in Africa and didn't migrate hmm. because they never encountered Neanderthals. So if you, if, uh, if for example, that means if you uh, found Neanderthal markers in uh an African person's DNA, that would tell you that they've had an ancestor that uh, a European ancestor at some point, because that reintroduced Neanderthal DNA into their, into their genome, because otherwise it wouldn't have any. Oh, now that's really interesting. Okay. But again, then if we, if, you know, you'd started off by saying that we have these packages and, you know, you go, you can only go back so 
so many generations before you don't have any of the packages. So how does that show up then? Like how do bits of Neanderthal show up in present day people's DNA? That's a wonderful opportunity for me to say one of the assumptions that I made in making that argument was to, I've ignored a couple of things that my scientist friends will pick me up on if I don't mention them. Uh, One of them is that there is a mechanism that actually does exchange DNA between chromosomes. It doesn't do it very frequently, but over but over time, it it does tend to scramble DNA. Uh, well, not scramble DNA. It can cause exchange of DNA between pairs of chromosomes of the same number. Mm. Uh, by which I mean, you know, chromosome one. You know, the, the, between members of the pairs of particular chromosomes, and that that process is called crossing over. And it occurs during the formation of the sperm and the egg. Um, so that means over time, there are, the, the whole thing about a chromosome being a completely self-contained package that never, you know, never exchanges with anything else is not 100% true. But nevertheless, you know, the argument that I made based on that assumption still holds in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, on average, you do you do uh, inherit genes in these packages. It's just that over time, there's a little bit of exchange between the packages. And that makes sense. So if you have enough time accrete, then you're going to have that little bit of seepage between the packages is going to yes. yeah. just only grow, right? Yes. And, that, and what that means is that you can inherit some Neanderthal DNA without necessarily inheriting an entire ne- Neanderthal chromosome. Mm. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> 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 and there's there's actually one there's one other thing as well which I should mention, which is that uh well actually two other things I should mention is when I was talking about okay, well if you go back through the generations, you get to a point whereby the number of uh ancestors you have, you know, there will be some of them f- from which you'll inherit no DNA. There's an assumption in that argument that uh None of our ancestors are related to each other, which oh, we know, wow. is, which we know is not true, because we're actually all related to each other, right? Right, because we're all members of the same species. But uh, and also, you know, obviously, your that you your number of ancestors, yes, it it doubles with each generation going backwards. But if you extend that argument too far, you end up with you know the population of the Earth was bigger, you know was greater millennia ago than it is today. And we know that's not true. Mm. And the reason why that's not true is because our ancestors actually are related to each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we're, because we're all members of the same species. Wow. Yeah. And then the other thing that I should mention is that, um, there are the, the Y chromosome. So, um, you know, we said well, how, how we like to call it is the broken X. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just I'll just ignore that okay. comment and carry on. Yeah. Um, you know, there are twenty-two non-sex chromosomes or autosomes, as they're called, and then there are the two sex chromosomes. And women have two X chromosomes, and men have an X and a Y chromosome. And what that means is that men always have inherited their Y chromosome from their father mm-hmm. and their father therefore inherited it from their father and so on and so on and so on and so on back through the generations. 
What that means is that there's always, at any given generation, if we go back in time to the point where there was 128 ancestors, you know, which is seven, seven generations ago, I know that one of those ancestors was responsible for 1% of my genome. And it's, and they can, and it'll always be 1% of the genome because that was my male ancestor that was the father of my father's 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 father, you oh, know, et cetera, wow. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, so that's uh, so a very that's- specific, distinct bit, you know, like we're, we've been talking about how you can't quite know how much you're getting from anybody, but that is a really specific number. Yeah, and and the ability uh, and there's an equivalent as well. Uh, um, so that only applies to men because men, are, you know, men have a Y chromosome and women don't. Mm-hmm. But there's also the phenomenon of the what's called the mitochondrial genome. And so when we talk about the genome, normally we're talking about the nuclear genome, the genome that's in the nucleus of the cells, that's the chromosomes and all this stuff we've been talking about. But actually, there's another genome that that we all have, which is called the mitochondrial genome. Inside many cells, probably most cells, there are these little structures called mitochondria, which are what people call, you know, they're the the powerhouses of the cell. It's where there's a lot of uh, uh, energy metabolism goes on and where ATP, the energy currency of the cell, is made. So so they're little powerhouses that make ATP. They're actually derived from bacteria that uh, have a – effectively established uh, a mutually beneficial relationship with our own cells. So now what we have are the descendants of these bacteria living inside our own cells that provide the energy that we need to, to function. It's, a, it's an amazing That's discovery. Crazy. This is the case. Yeah, yeah. Now, because these bacteria had a genome, we still have the remnants of that genome and, and the the genes in that genome contribute to the overall biology of the cell. Um, now, the the really fascinating thing is, if you think about uh, the process of fertilization, so w- what you have when fertilization occurs, when the sperm f- fertilizes the egg, the, the human egg is a huge cell. It, it's much bigger than almost all other cells that exist in the human body. So it has a, a little nucleus and it has a huge amount of cell around that, that nucleus, including these mitochondria. When the sperm comes along and it fuses with that egg in the process of fertilization, basically what it does is it just injects its DNA. And although there are mitochondria in the sperm, they don't end up inside the fertilized egg. So, then that fertilized egg uh, divides and becomes an embryo, becomes a fetus, becomes a baby, becomes a person. Um, and during all of that process of, of cell division and growth, the mitochondria are growing and dividing as well. Mm-hmm. And what, they mean, what that means is that all of our mitochondrial genomes are inherited from our mothers. Oh, we don't get the mitochondrial genome from our fathers. We only get it from our mothers. So we can use the 
Y chromosome to trace in the male lineage to trace back through that single line of descent, descent through a series of individuals. And we can use the mitochondrial genome to trace back through the maternal line, which is a, a fantastically wonderful gift of nature to scientists because it enables some really interesting analysis to be done. And an example of this, actually, I came across um, a couple of years ago when I was in Iceland. And Iceland's a really interesting population genetically because um, th they are descended from Vikings who went from Scandinavia to Iceland and, and formed settlements there. But what they, what they found when they did the DNA analysis on the Icelandic population is that the male Vikings, I think when the Vikings went off on their voyages and, you know, invading raids and all that sort of stuff, it was mostly all male. So they didn't take many women with them, or maybe they didn't take any women with them. But what they actually did when they settled, settled Iceland was they, they sailed over to the north coast of Scotland and parts of Ireland as well, I think, picked up some women and took them to Iceland. And then the population of Iceland has descended from male Vikings and female Scottish and Irish women. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, to, just to think that we are capable of working out that kind of thing. I mean, it's just, that's amazing. amazing. That is amazing. And, and that's all derived from analyzing the Y chromosomes of Icelandic men and the mitochondrial genome of, of Icelandic people. So they are actually using these DNA studies to trace migration patterns. It's working. Um, yes. I, but I think, I mean, if you, these days, if you're going to, if you're a serious um, geneticist, you would do that by sequencing the genomes probably. Mm -hmm. rather than doing the SNP analysis because mm -hmm. it's a more a higher resolution technique. But it's the same principle. I mean, yeah. That's amazing. It's incredible. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see what my test is going to show. Are you going to ever have a ton? <laughs> you, you know, I was, this made me think, actually, maybe I will because it's really affordable now. Oh, I mean, I think it's, it's yeah. down to like $100 or something. I mean, well, it's incredible. It's less than that. And, you know, if you split it with your brother, it's <laughs> Yeah, that's cheaper. a good idea. I, I can't see any reason to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. We're, it's, it's getting kind of close to the end of the show. But I, it's something that I do want to touch on because really at the heart of it, this is what is at the heart of it for me. So we have these really cool um, scientific methods of discovering these things that nobody's been able to discover before. Um, and, and I know I've read just a little bit about behavioral genetics, you know, and that's something I think that now that we're, we're learning that uh, tracing our roots, um, there, there's, a, there's a physiological component to things other than the color of our eyes and the color of our hair. Um, but I guess culturally is what I'm interested in how these tests are, how they're going to shape our sense of identity. And, um, and to me, I think that's just, 
in a way, it's the more interesting of the questions, you know, because we've, we, we all grow up, even if we consider ourselves to be very liberal minded, even if we have no, um, you know, no prejudice against any other group, we still grow up thinking of ourselves as a construct of, you know, a certain identity. And even, you know, like me, I'm a mutt, but I know, Basically, you know, the, the family tale has it that, you know, on the one side, we're from Missouri, from the Ozarks of Missouri for generations back, on the other side, German, and, you know, a few other things thrown in. But if I get my test back and it shows that I'm from some places that have never popped up in the, you know, the Woods family ancestry book, um, I just, I, I, I think that's the interesting thing because, I suspect we're all going to find that we're more closely related to disparate groups than we ever believed or that we ever thought of ourselves as belonging to. What do you think? I mean, you come from a you come from a place where it's a more homogenous uh population. Yeah. And so what happens if you find out that, you know, whatever you're you've got pygmy blood in you from from you know, the South Pacific. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the important thing is to bear in mind that what we consider our ancestry is what it's almost like a cultural ancestry. It's our family cultural ancestry ancestry right it's it's your parents your grandparents who you know most of us have known our parents and our grandparents and we've heard about our great-grandparents and that that's that's sort of part of your personal identity if you look at things at a dna level it's telling you a different thing mm-hmm. you know it's, it's just telling you a different thing and and i think there may be times when those things apparently seem to be in conflict with each other. And I think the challenge there is to just be able to hold two apparently contradictory thoughts in your head at one time and not let it bother you. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, as a scientist, I think we often have to do that actually. And uh, I, I think it, it also touches on you know concepts such as racial purity and all that sort of nonsense, you know, um, the, the reality is, I think we're all mutts generally, um, mm-hmm. with 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 few exceptions. I mean, there are isolated populations in the world that have um, remained isolated over long periods of time. But at the end of the day, we all came out of Africa. We're all African originally, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Genetic variation within a population is much greater than the genetic variation between populations. So, Wait, what all, do you mean? Um, just that. I mean, if you look at, obviously, we're all genetic. We're we're all individuals. We all have our own particular genetic makeup. And if you analyze the variations within a population, they're huge compared to the variations between what we classify as the different races. Mm. Hmm. That's really Um, interesting. I've never heard that before. So, you know, scientific information obviously can be misused by people who will misuse whatever they can use for their own purposes anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I personally think it's, it's, I think the sort of ethical 
questions around the ancestry part of this kind of screening are much actually much less than they are around the the medical right i see that this this kind of screening in a way i think this could be a really beautiful thing because if we look upstream you know from the people that we've come from and we're not just getting the physical characteristics from them you know you were talking about how culturally you know that that when we're talking about ancestors it's it's more the cultural thing that is is very strong um and that gets passed down and i'm sure it gets watered down and and it hybridizes and it changes, but it's also there. So if you find out that um, if there's a big surprise on your report, I think that can make it life seem richer because you don't know if, if we really do have some some personality traits or some parts, bits of our personality that are coming from people that came before us. And, you know, obviously we're going to be more strongly, um, influenced by our parents and our grandparents, but they in turn were more strongly influenced by their parents and grandparents and so on and so on. So you've got this, this flood of, or, or this stream of, of cultural influence that comes down through the generations. And then all of a sudden you might find that, oh, wait, there's this channel of, you know, this, this river that's coming from someplace else. And I, that part I think is really interesting. Um, Mm. and, and I think it can enrich us, um, just even on a personal level. So I want to read something, um, really short here. It's somebody that I'm, that I'm Facebook friends with. I don't know very well at all, but he wrote something that was really beautiful. Um, he identifies with his very pale, um, you know, pale skin, pale hair. His, uh, he identifies with his Irish roots and his Polish roots. Well, he had the ancestry DNA done and he was shocked by the results. Um, partly because he found out that he is 3.3% Nigerian. And this is, <laughs> this is where it gets really beautiful. I think he says, this is a post that he wrote and he said each of my 32 each of my 32 great 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 grandparents contributed 3.125% of my dna i've been reading slave narratives for the past month and feel quite sure that of all the ancestors the one from nigeria prayed hardest prayed the hardest the deepest and the most often for his or her future generations including me. And then he goes on to say, you know, I want, I want to know this person. I want to visit Nigeria. And this is where it really got me. He says, so he knew already that he was Irish and that he was Polish. Um, he didn't know that he was English. He didn't know that he was North African, but he says, I am, I am Irish who colonized nobody. I am English who colonized everybody they could. I am Polish. I am Jewish. I am Northern African. I am Nigerian. I am human. And I'm telling you that that almost made me cry because, you know, I, I don't mean to be too airy fairy about it all, but it just, it really drives it home that y- this interconnectedness of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the part that I think is exciting about this, these DNA tests for, for heritage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all uh, look for identity and, some sort of meaning for our own lives, mm-hmm. I think, in various ways. And uh, and you can use all sorts of information to provide that. Uh, but I, yeah, I think that's a really nice sentiment. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mike. Well, thank you for 
talking with us and explaining it. I I still don't I don't think I have a terribly good grasp on it, but it's it's clearer that it was before we talked. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, if people want to hear more of your music since now they it's been revealed who who does the great intro and outro for me, where do they go? Oh dear. Um I have a SoundCloud um account and I think I use the name Horace Spatula. <laughs> Uh, for that account. So if somebody goes there and searches on Horace Spatula, that's Horace, S-P-A-T-U-L-A, they'll probably find it. Well, I will put links to, um, I'll put a link to your SoundCloud account in the show notes. Oh, no. <laughs> sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you again for being on. Okay. You're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Good. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. And that does it for our interview with Mike Tones. I hope that you enjoyed the show, the talk about Ancestry DNA and 23andMe. I still have a lot of questions. Um, and I think what this really drove home for me is I'm really most interested in this intersection of where the science and our cultural heritage meets our scientific genealogical ancestry heritage if that makes any sense. But I, I'm wondering if if this topic resonates with you um, and if it resonates with the clients. Is this something that we should be looking into as part of our life story work? So all of the things that we talked about today, including Mike's music, his SoundCloud account, I'll put in the links of the show notes. And if I didn't mention it during the episode, the man who wrote that very beautiful piece about his reaction to his DNA results, um, his name is Greg Cronin. He's a professor in Colorado, if I didn't mention that before. Um, anyhow, I hope that you enjoy this. I hope that you took something away from it. And if you did, the best way that you can help is to go onto iTunes and leave us a review for the Life Story Coach podcast. That helps get the word out, helps other people find the show. And it just makes me feel good, to be honest. <laughs> so I hope that you all have a good week. And thanks for listening. I'm Amy Woods Butler, personal historian and life story writer, and your coach for building your own life story business. Now go out and save someone's story.